Okay, well now would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, we're in chapter 4. We're reading verses 12 through 19. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. That text says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Many of you uh, who have been around for a while remember Dawn Bruder. She was our sister in Christ, our, uh, a member of Bethel. She died last year, I believe, of, of cancer. She was an incredible woman of faith. Uh, I had the privilege, uh, uh, I, I didn't know her well, but I had this, the privilege of interviewing her uh, uh, as she shared her testimony of G- the goodness of Jesus in her life about a month before she passed away. And I left that time so encouraged and spurred on in my faith. I was talking uh, to Jill Finley with her around that time uh, uh, about, about Dawn and uh, Jill told me a story about when she was visiting Dawn in the hospital. She was there because of her cancer, and uh, her Jill and her sister were visiting, and had both had people to visit, so they they went and did it together. And and Jill was visiting Dawn, and Jill's sister was was visiting a, uh, visiting a man from her church, and they visited the man, and they talked with him, and and they found his room dark, and his mood negative, despondent complaining about the quality of his care, complaining about the lack of care from his church, even though Jill's sister was right there. They mentioned that they were also visiting Dawn that same day, and, and uh, he kind of gruffly said, yeah, con- cancer sucks. And, uh, was just, and, and, and he, they left that, that room feeling quite sad for this man and, and, and what was going on in his life. And they went down the hall to visit Dawn, and the room was bright, and, and so was Dawn. And she talked about all the good things about how she was being cared for, and, and 
she talked about how she got to pray with her nurse, and she was looking for ways to be a blessing in that place and in that time. And when Jill and her sister shared about the other man uh, that they were visiting, she was compassionate and caring and comforting uh, Jill's sister and, and encouraging her. And they left that visit, and Jill's sister said with surprise, I feel lifted up and encouraged. Two people going through the same trial and coming out so different. Why is that? And which do you want to be? And I know as our pastor, I want us to be a church full of dawn brooders. Then we will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. How can we become the kind of people that respond like dawn? first thing this text tells us is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. That's what Peter says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not something strange, he says. When I first read this, I thought it sounded a bit dismissive. Uh, of people's pain, of people's real struggles. But when he says, don't be surprised, that's not condescending rhetoric. He really doesn't want you to be surprised because notice he says that the trial comes to test you. He wants to know, he wants you to know that your suffering, your trial is purposeful. It's not meaningless. It's not, it's a, it's a plan. Even if, it, even if it does surprise you, it does not surprise God. So be prepared. Be ready. Because if trials and suffering catches you off guard, you will not respond well. You never respond to anything well that you're not preparing for. I'm going to open up and confess uh, in order to illustrate a little bit. So there's been times when I've been Maybe some of you can relate, but I've been worn out from a long day, ready and looking forward to getting home so I can kick off my shoes and relax. And then I get in the door and boom, Audrey has like five big tasks for me to do. She, she, you know, I've got to change the batteries on this beeping smoke detector. I've got to change the poopy diaper on this, on this whining baby. I've got to fix this thing and finish cooking this thing. And then I get all filled with indignation and huffy with self-pity and because I was expecting comfort and to be served. But what I got was ways to serve her. I was surprised by the trial, so I only saw the bad. I didn't respond the way, in the way of Christ. Now I'm ready. I'm ready when I get home now. I know, I know when Audrey sees my strong arms walk in that door, she's going to want to put me to work, you know? So I'm ready. And, and now when I, when I have the right expectations so I can face it with the right attitude, I'm able to see it as a blessing, the blessing that it is, as a way to bless my family. That's a small example, but even in big suffering, we can have... This perspective, Jesus faced a lot of suffering and he wasn't undone by it. Why? 
Well, he, wasn't, he didn't live in denial. He didn't have his head in the sand. He felt deeply. He grieved deeply, but he wasn't taken off guard by anything. He was, he was ready for suffering. He expected it. If we want to follow Jesus, we'll need to adjust our expectations for the life he gives us. Jesus was a man of sorrows, the Bible tells us, acquainted with grief, whose life, his own life, right? He did not spare. He lived so much of his life homeless, really, right? He even says so at one point. He lived his life in poverty. He was maligned and misunderstood. He was embarrassed, an embarrassment to his own family. He thought he was crazy at times. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was brutally executed in his early 30s by Roman authorities. Furthermore, you know, Jesus declared that all who want to follow him, they must deny their selves and take up their own cross and follow him. Daily, one translation, one uh, book says. When Jesus was trying to reorient his followers around his new way of life, this upside-down kingdom that he was instituting, he gave this list of, of descriptions of who the truly blessed people are, and some of them are quite shocking. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, here's another one, this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that word blessed, and the, it, some, like some, it's really close to the word happy. It's, it's really saying the, this is the happy person. Jesus wasn't against happiness. He just had a different view of what will make us truly happy. The question for us is, do we believe him? We need a paradigm shift for our expectations for our lives. Trouble will come, Peter says. My prayer for us this, this evening is that when the trials and sufferings come, to which are, we are already appointed, we will meet it full of faith, unwavering and confident in our Lord Jesus. So in order to help you prepare and not be surprised you're taken off guard, I, uh, in a few moments, I want to discuss the kinds of suffering you will face and how we are to respond. And this passage really helps us understand that and, and how, we're, how we're to respond to this suffering. But first, I want to say, just as we need to have a higher view of our, of our suffering, right, knowing that it's not random or meaningless, but that it is purposeful in the hand and plan of our good God, we also need to elevate our view of how we respond 
in suffering. We don't just live in denial and we don't just grin and bear it, but actually respond with true and deep joy. We are to count it, even when we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, as joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, James says. Not the flippant and, and trite joy that tap dances and giggles, but a deep joy. C.S. Lewis says there's a kind of joy that makes you serious. The kind of joy that says, like Micah 7.8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. Because we know that the good and mighty God who has brought me into this darkness, He will plead my cause and vindicate me in due time. So much has to, be, has to go through. The, so much within us needs to be burned up. Do you know that? We are all imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. Though There will be no... Yeah, but you're imperfect, yes, now. But here's the thing. There will be no imperfect people in heaven. Do you know that? And a lot of God's process of suffering is getting us ready for heaven by burning the hell out of our hearts. And that is what he's doing in suffering. That's what suffering is doing. That's why Peter calls it a fire, a fiery trial. He uses that word for smelting, the pure, this, the talking about the purification of metal. The Bible talks about purity quite a bit. And I think if I surveyed the room, you would probably all think, say that you want to be pure, that you think of purity in positive terms. But the way the Bible talks about purity is like is being purified like a refined metal through fire. This is how we get there, to purity, through fire. Like a precious metal has imperfections burned away, the imperfections that can't take the heat. You see, suffering in its most basic form, uh, a little definition I use sometimes, is just the loss of something that we otherwise would not want to lose. The loss of health, the loss of money, the loss of a loved one. The loss of reputation, the loss of comfort. And sometimes the loss is so much more damaging because we valued things in the wrong order. Not that it's wrong to value these things, but that we value them wrongly. You see, God values things so much differently than we do. That's why this disconnect in how we think about suffering. I remember as a kid, I can't remember all the details, uh, but my dad hurt his shoulder or, or something uh, one week in the summer and, and he couldn't work or he couldn't work overtime. I can't remember exactly. My mom would remember better. But anyway, he was, he was all disappointed. But me, I was excited, right? Because the same situation was happening, right? With the same effect too. We both missed out on that money. Because the money he got was providing for me, right? But, but we were valuing things differently. We both got to spend more time together. And that's what I was focusing on. I valued the time with my dad far more. And my dad, my dad loved me. Don't get me wrong. 
But he was focusing on what he had lost, and I was focusing on what I had gained. And God has a different perspective than us. And he values things differently than us. And he wants to align our values with his values. What he values most is his glory. And so what he values most in you is your faith. That which glorifies him most. He values your faith so highly that he's not content with it being mixed in with a bunch of of imperfections and dross. He wants to purify it. He wants to make it stronger and more resilient to make you more brilliant and beautiful in faith. And And we should value what God values, shouldn't we? Because he's the right one. His values are the right values. And this system of values, if we get on board, it can give us resilient joy because if, if what I said is true, if suffering is the loss of things, well, you will never lose God. Never. And as we value what He values, we can see suffering as an opportunity, not just as a loss. A few months ago, the author and theologian uh, J.I. Packer died, and we were reminiscing about his ministry in the office, and Drew shared a quote with me that has just lodged in my mind. He said, if, uh, J.I. Packer, he said, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. There can be clarity in suffering if you're asking the right questions. You see? There is an insidious heresy in the Western Christianity, and American Christianity in particular, that that some refer to as the prosperity gospel. And it says that, that faith in God leads to health and wealth and everything going your way. Otherwise, why'd you fo- why would you follow Jesus? But Peter clearly has a different view, doesn't he? Just Even just reading a little bit of the Bible. The Bible has a different view of prosperity in general. Let me show you what I mean. In Jeremiah 13, God tells Jeremiah to take his, his loincloth and, and hide it under a rock. A loincloth, think, it's less like Tarzan and more like a, an ancient form of underwear. So we'll say underwear. Because uh, that's more fun. But so he hides he hides his underwear, like God says, and then after many days, uh, God tells him to go and get it. And so he goes and gets it, and and he takes it out. And just as you would expect with underwear that's been hidden under a rock for a long time, it, he says that it is not prospering. <laughs> okay, he uses the same Hebrew word for prosperity, but the ESV translates it as it was good for nothing. It had been ruined. He goes on to say that this is representative of evil people who stubbornly follow their own heart. They will be good for nothing. They will not prosper. And listen to verse 11. He says this, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. He's saying that they were meant to cling to him. 
to become a praise and a glory, but they were not living into the fullness of who they were meant to be. And so we see from this, right, if that's what prosperity is, to prosper from this story about the underwear is when something prospers, it is to be of good use for what it was meant for. That's what prosperity is. And that's a much better definition because then to prosper, if it's it's succeeding what you were meant to be and do, that's so different from the view of prosperity that we have and and that the the heretical prosperity gospel has. This biblical kind of prosperity can happen even in the midst of trial and poverty and suffering. You don't have to be healthy or wealthy to fully prosper, is what this is telling us. That's good news. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is the 8th chapter of Romans. Near the end he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you see what he said? He he doesn't say that these things won't happen. He says in these things we will prosper through Christ. So now... Let's look at the types of suffering we will face and how we are to respond. There's two main types of suffering here, as I see it. Suffering as a consequence of sin, and then what he calls suffering as a Christian. Look at verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying don't suffer as an evildoer, as a, as a thief, as a murderer, as a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. So first, In your suffering, examine your life to see if the suffering has come as a result of sin. Ask God to probe your heart like like, uh, King David does when he asks God to search me and know me and show me if there be any grievous way in me. If if that's true, then your suffering is, is a discipline from the Lord, most likely, at least in part. I think we ought to face all suffering through that lens, at least at first. Um, And if you are sinning right now without experiencing what you might call suffering, which might be the case in some of your lives, do not mistake God's patience with your sin as a license to keep on sinning. Exodus 34 says that God is slow to anger But Romans 2 says that God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead you to repentance. But if you as a child of God persist in sin, you will be disciplined because He won't let you stay there. If you won't respond in repentance, 
uh, with repentance to his, his patience, then he will discipline you so that you will respond in repentance. He wants you close to him. And it will be hard when he disciplines you, but it will turn out for your good. I get that from Hebrews 2.11, which says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. In the faithful, this discipline from God, it produces repentance and renewed reliance upon God's strengths. Strength, And this is, is God's grace toward you, and it will, it will lead you to your good. But there is a more glorious way to suffer. If, if I've hopefully created a category in your mind of glorious suffering, there is a more glorious way to suffer. And that's what he calls suffering as a Christian. I remember the very first sermon I preached here, uh, it was about uh, like seven years ago, I think now, uh, I was interning here, and that, uh, I began that sermon with a little survey. I don't know if any of you were even here, I, but I, I, was, I was trying to connect a couple truths together in your thinking. I split the congregation into two halves uh, so that it was easier to have a unified voice, and I asked two questions. I won't make you say it out loud like I did, but, uh, but respond in your mind, okay? So I asked two questions uh, that were super simple, super obvious, uh, just the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Um, and I asked the first group, as Christians, who do we aim to be like? Hopefully in your mind you said something like Jesus, right? Or Christ, a no-brainer. And John says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. You know, so there's the first question and answer. We're to be like Christ. The second group, I asked this question. And you do the same thing, respond in your mind with the first thing that comes to mind. What did Christ do? Hopefully, most people then said something like, he died on a cross for our sins, which I hope is something that you thought. And that's right. Christ suffered and died for the sake of his people. Now connect those two truths. We're to be like Christ, and Christ suffered for the sake of others. Right? But too often we don't connect those. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? How do we walk in love as imitators of God? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Talking about the cross. Peter says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now, we know we're supposed to be like Jesus, and he's primarily known for suffering for the sake of others in love. That very suffering was an example for us to follow. Christians are called to suffer. And this will come in, in various ways. It will come from persecution, and it will also just come as a result of loving well sometimes. At the beginning of fall, Drew was starting a new series through Colossians with his students. And he asked me to teach from the beginning of the book to kick it off. And uh, so I was like, okay. I was reading through it, and I got stuck on verses 4 and 5 of that passage, right at the beginning of Colossians, in a, a passage that honestly I had just read over in the past. He says, 
Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you see what I see. What he's saying is, he says, we heard of your love. And he says that that love is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When I saw that, I asked myself, how might hoping in heaven move us to be more loving people? What is it about love that needs hope? And then I realized it's because genuine love costs you something. And if it's going to cost you something, you have to have something animating your love that's much bigger and better than whatever it is that that love costs you. There's a passage that says just that in Hebrews 10. He says this very thing. He says to these Christians, you had compassion on those in prison. and you, So they visited their friends in prison and it cost them the plundering of their property. But he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They could rejoice in their sufferings. It tells us right there, they did. And they could love in a costly way because of their confident hope. And this is suffering as a Christian. When he says suffering as a Christian, this is glorious suffering. Suffering as a Christian also comes from persecution. It really does. And, and this is what Peter was getting at when he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory. He says, uh, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that suffering. When we talk about this kind of suffering, being insulted as a Christian and being tempted toward being ashamed, there's something that I feel like needs to be said because I have noticed a disturbing trend where people claim promises about persecution as a right to be belligerent. To speak disrespectfully and act hatefully in the name of Christian values. And then when they're called out, they talk about how the Bible said we're going to be persecuted. But did you miss when he said not to suffer as an evildoer or a meddler? Persecution does not exempt you from the high calling of enemy love. Jesus calls you to love your enemies. Like We've noticed you've got to prepare your heart and be ready for it if you're going to respond the way Jesus did. If you want to really respond the way Jesus did, you've got to be ready. But if you are ready and, and, and prayerful, you can respond with gentleness and with love in the face of persecution. And that will bring great glory to the name of Christ. That will glorify Christ. Now, there's another form of suffering, in addition to these two, suffering uh, that happens for reasons beyond what we can know, beyond our comprehension. Like our, our blessed friend Job. Job 
He was the best of us because we, we review, we look at the, the world hastily and we rush to conclusions on, on spur of the moment under, under our stress and, and deep emotion and we assume that things are just the way we would think they are. But Job didn't. He searched for an explanation to his suffering and he didn't find it. But he found something almost as good, maybe better. He found that the depths into which he plunged were immeasurably more vast than he thought. And he realized that he couldn't successfully search those depths. Job, the the searching sufferer, did not find what he sought in the form of an answer that explained all of his suffering. But when he was humbled by the majesty of God speaking to him, our, our God, our great God, spoke to him and humbled him, and he was convinced that even though he didn't know the answer, it existed somewhere. And so it's okay to resist your suffering in prayer and pray against it and ask God to remove it like the Apostle Paul himself did. And sometimes God does miraculously and wonderfully, and sometimes he does not. For holy and wise, and purposeful reasons because He loves us. He loves you. But in the meantime, Peter tells us how to respond. And I love this part of the passage so much. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator, while doing good. I love that verse. You should memorize it as part of that preparation I talked about. Your Creator is faithful. Entrust yourself, your soul, to Him while doing good. This reminds me of a couple things that C.S. Lewis has taught me. And... uh, there are a few C.S. Lewis references here. I didn't have much time to prepare, so I go with the first thing that came to my mind, and that's usually C.S. Lewis. So, uh, in The Magician's Nephew, uh, there, that's the, the, it's the beginning of Narnia. And this boy, Diggory, he has a, a very ill mother back home, and he appeals to Aslan. He goes up to Aslan the lion, uh, And he says, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up up till then, Diggory had had been looking at the lion's great feet, the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. 
Aslan's response reminds me of that passage that says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But I also love how he says, grief is great, let us be good to one another. That's the response in the face of suffering. Let us be good to one another. When you suffer, it's so easy to brood and despair and become short-tempered and give up on investing in relationships and church and slip into complaining and idleness. But we are called to something greater. And we must never use our suffering and our doubts to excuse sin and idleness that will only make things worse. Peter is calling us to obey God in the midst of the darkness. C.S. Lewis, uh, he has in the screw tape letters, which if you're not familiar with the book, it's a... A demon is giving advice to a younger demon on how to lead a human astray. And he says this, Our cause, this cause of evil, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, our enemy is God in this passage, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeyed. As Lewis's hero, George MacDonald, once said, obedience is the great opener of eyes. Jesus himself said that as we love the least of these, we do it to him. We encounter Jesus on the road as we are living the way of Jesus. And often, this is not a punishment, our suffering, as we first assume it is, but it can be a reward. One final C.S. Lewis reference. Sorry about this. But in The Horse and His Boy, there's a boy named Shasta. And his friends, uh, Shasta and his friends, uh, two horses and and another person, they're on on a a mad dash through the desert uh, with little food, little water, little rest. And they've been going for a while. And they're going, they're trying to warn a good king about an evil king's attack that is, that is right on their heels. And they, they finally, they collapse out of exhaustion where, uh, close to where they think they're going. And then a lion arrives and it wounds one of them and chases them and they have to keep going to survive. And, and Shasta bravely chases off the lion and they finally get to the, the gate of a friend and where they, they thought they were going, and he collapses, and thinking they arrived, and the friend helps his wounded friend, and he says to Shasta, Now, my son, waste no time on questions, but obey. This damsel is wounded. Your horses are spent. The evil king is at this moment finding a way to where he is going. If you run now, without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn the good king. Can you imagine? Shasta now, he has to keep going on foot. Even further, Shasta's reaction is the same as any of ours would have been. His heart fainted at these words, it says. For he felt he had no strength left, and he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. Nevertheless, he asks for directions to the king. And then he sets off running as fast as he can. 
And the narrator tells us Shasta had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward is usually, usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. Harder, but better. That's the reward. As we live this way in faith, don't be afraid. God supplies the grace to endure. And that's why he gets the glory. As we live in faith, trusting him. You see, glory is the manifestation of, I want to give you a little working definition of glory to go alongside that working definition of suffering so you can see how the two work together. Glory is the, is the manifestation of God's unique greatness. If we take that working definition of glory and that working definition of suffering, I said earlier, that suffering is losing something we otherwise would want, then we can see how obeying, how, how Obeying and rejoicing in suffering will glorify God, right? Because if we respond in such a way that makes God seem better than everything we have lost, that glorifies God. That manifests His unique greatness in our lives, doesn't it? And that means you have to see Him in that way as truly great. And truly worthy. You have to look at him loving you so much that he suffered and died for you. He suffered and died for you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he invites you into his joy. My joy I give to you, he says. Let us entrust our souls to him, to our faithful Lord while doing good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for calling us to something higher and harder and better than comfort, to a prosperity greater than this world knows. Lord, give us grace to repent when we suffer as a result of sin. Restore us, Lord, and give us grace to suffer joyfully when we suffer as Christians. Give us the comfort of humility when we face suffering that only you know the reason for. And give us confidence in your love always. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.